Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, why don't you go ahead and flip over to Hebrews chapter 8, starting a new chapter in this study that's taken us so far all the way through this year and will carry us through to the end of the year. Hebrews chapter 8, the first six verses where we're going to be this morning. Now, if you don't have a Bible, let me, let me direct your attention to the end of the aisles here at the center. There are, there are Bibles on the floor under some chairs and pens on top of those if you want to take notes or fill out one of those info cards I begged you to fill out earlier in the service. Flag somebody down and they'll be happy to, to pass those to you. Hebrews chapter 8 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, as, as, as I got into studying it this week and thinking back about where we've already been in our study of Hebrews... I couldn't help but think about the compare and contrast papers that we're all forced to write in college and maybe even in high school. And basic, basic English composition, you know, that's one of the four papers you get to write every in that semester. And, and it calls on you to, to read maybe a passage in a classic book that has two different characters in it and to break them down. What's the differences between them? Where are they alike? What are their, how are their functions the same? How are they different to compare and contrast them? It, it seems to me that that's basically what Hebrews is. It's one really big, detailed, sometimes difficult to grasp, compare and contrast paper where Jesus is pitted against everything that had come before him. It's a compare and contrast paper with a very, very important point. A a, a paper in which the author knew that lives, eternal lives, hung in the balance. He wrote to his dear friends, Friends that he knew were teetering on the edge of leaving Jesus because they experienced what everybody in this room has experienced at one point or another. A sense that maybe Jesus isn't as valuable to us as what we can get somewhere else. Now this book was written directly to a very particular people in a particular time and place. And what that's meant for us is that we've had to do some hard work to try to bridge that gap, to take our minds to where they would have been 2,000 years ago. What they needed to hear in this compare and contrast was maybe different from the nitty-gritty that we would need to hear. But we tried to focus on, on what he says about Jesus as the reality that everything else was pointing to because those truths, no matter what he was comparing them to, are always the foundation that gives our faith its security. That's what we tried to isolate. And we're going to do the same thing this morning. Ultimately, what he was writing to was a group of people who thought that maybe the Judaism that they had come out of was more attractive than the Christianity they had come into. The Judaism that they had come out of was easy to see. It was visible. It had a concrete temple. You know, you could go to it. You could touch things and smell things. It, it had a familiarity to it. It felt like home to them. And ultimately, it was safer because it was a legal religion in a way that Christianity wasn't. And if you, if you practiced Judaism, nobody was going to come along and try to cut your head off in the way that they would if you practiced Christianity. So there were all of these factors tugging at them, and where our author hits them is by showing that everything that Judaism had represented for them as a religion that was designed by God for their good was only a shadow of what Jesus comes to fulfill. This morning, the language that we're going to get introduced to, that he uses in in our passage, and he's going to use it over and over again in the next few chapters, is the language of shadow and reality, or copy and the, the real thing. We're going to try to get a good, clear sense of what this author means when he calls the old way of doing things, recorded in the Old Testament, a shadow of which Jesus 
is the reality. What I want to do is, is read our six verses for this morning. Then I want to talk for just a minute about this shadow reality thing and make sure we're clear on how he's using it and clear on how he isn't using it because there's, a, there's some big misunderstandings we want to avoid. And then this morning, the, the meat of what we're getting into is that these six verses introduce us to two things about how Jesus serves us as a priest that represent the reality of which everything in the Old Testament was merely a shadow. Those things are the place where Jesus does his work, what he calls the true tent or the true tabernacle, and the covenant that Jesus serves for us or how he intercedes for us. That's where we're headed this morning. Now, if you found the passage, will you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read together? This is Hebrews chapter 8, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 6. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. This is God's word. You can be seated. You can see just from the beginning, just from those first couple verses, that our author is summing something up that he's been talking about for quite some time and now moving it into a little bit different angle that, uh, of attack. What he's summing up is this stuff we've been talking about in chapter 7 about Jesus as a priest, one who was appointed in this totally different kind of order, one that's associated with this shadowy and mysterious figure named Melchizedek. He's summing that up, giving us, here's the point of what I've been saying. And now he's shifting gears into something even more specific. If that was about how Jesus got his priesthood, what's coming in the next two or three chapters is what Jesus does as a priest, how he does it, where he does it, all the details of his service. But before we get there, I think we've got to get really clear on what this author means when he calls the old way of doing things a shadow or a copy of the heavenly things. You notice that language in, in verse 5? Those things, the tabernacle and the sacrifices they were given, are a shadow of the heavenly things where Jesus is. What does he mean by that? I think we got to get clear on this before we go any further because I think there, are, there is a very wrong way to understand this. Let, let me first illustrate what I don't think he means here, and then, I'll, and then I'll give you an illustration for what I do think that he means, what I don't think that he means. I don't think he means that they, these old things in the Old Testament, like the temple and the priesthood, are a copy versus a true reality in the sense that they were a fraud, that they were some sort of ripoff of which Jesus is the real thing. You know, a, a fraudulent copy versus a genuine article. So here's my, here's my illustration. 
probably the best gift I've ever received, one of the best gifts at least, that I've ever received is an iPad. And recently, for my iPad, I was going to buy one of those smart covers. You know what I'm talking about? They're these magnetic things that they kind of roll up and they become a little stand for the, for the, for the iPad. And they, when they close over the iPad, they turn it off. And, and so you don't have to worry about hitting any buttons. It's great. It's seamless. It's very Apple. Well, I tried to get a little bit too cute. And instead of going to the Apple store to get this said smart cover, I tried to order one at a discount on Amazon. Now, knowing that there are fraudulent things sold on Amazon all the time, I was really careful about it. I even looked at the model number and tried to match that up completely with the one that was on Apple's website. And I did all of that. And sure enough, when I got it, it had it had it perfectly matched the, the the packaging of the one at the Apple Store, and from a distance, it looked exactly like the one from the Apple Store. But from the second I picked it up, I could tell that this thing was a fraud. All the material was different. It was kind of rough. It didn't fold up quite right. The magnets kept trying to attach to the front of the iPad instead of the back of the iPad. And when you close the thing, it doesn't turn off. It doesn't basically doesn't do anything that the that the real copy is or the real thing is supposed to do. It has no functionality. It's a cheap ripoff, and they got my 20 bucks. That's what I get for trying to, to save a, a little bit of money. That's not what he means here, right? That, 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 that it's a, a fraud, some sort of cheap ripoff. What he's trying to... If, if, the author of the Hebrews, if we've seen anything, is that he loves the Old Testament. He thought that, he th- he thought that, that the, the forms that the Old Testament describes to us were a gift from God. They were God's gracious attempt to make a relationship with us where one didn't exist before. These things weren't rip-offs. They were, they were designed by God. I mean, think even of verse 5 that we read a minute ago where he talks about the tabernacle being a copy or a shadow of the heavenly things. What does he say? He says it's a, it's a copy that God showed to Moses. He says God designed it, basically, that he... It's almost like he pulled back the curtains and let Moses see what the real thing looked like inside the heavenly places and says, go build one of these, and here are the specs for it. God designed it. It was, it was a gift. It's just that it served a different purpose. It's not that it was true versus something that's false. It's not that Jesus is true versus something that was false. It's that Jesus is true versus something that was transient, something that was temporary and incomplete. Let me give you an illustration of, of what I, does think, I do think that it means. I, I think it means, again, that these old forms, like the temple and the old priesthood and, and the other things that, that Hebrews has addressed, they were copies or shadows in that they were never meant to be final but only, only point toward what was coming. They were similar to what was coming in that they were useful and they, they actually performed the right functions. They got people connected to God. That was something they did in a way that my cheap rip-off iPad cover just can't do the things that the real one does. These, were, th- these forms that God set up were doing what they were meant to do. It just wasn't complete. They had to be done over and over and over again because they just couldn't fully and completely do what needed to be done. I think a better analogy for this is, is for example, communication patterns. So it's in the 1600s, if you wanted to talk to somebody in England and you lived in America, you wrote a letter and you sent it on a boat. And if you got lucky, they would get that message probably three, four months later. But communication would happen. Then fast forward two or three hundred years when they developed the telegraph wires and they get that wire laid all the way across the Atlantic. Well, now all of a sudden you can hammer out messages that are received pretty quickly. Uh, it's not perfect, you know, it's, it, but it, it gets the job done. 
Now fast forward to today, and you can communicate across the Atlantic, not just by phone, but by email. You don't have to send a letter through a boat. You can, you can email someone, or you can even talk to them face-to-face through Skype, on your phone even. Now compare that to, to 1,600 years ago. There was, no, there was no real flaw in the letter-writing, sending-it-by-ship kind of system in the sense that it, it did what it was meant to do. It's just that Skype does it a lot better. It's quicker, it's more, it's more real-time, it, you can actually see people. It's, it just does what that did better. Here's another example. Uh, back before I was pastoring and had to, had to work out every Sunday, there were a couple times where I skipped church and went to a Titans game. Anybody else done that? You've gone to a Titans game on Sunday? Nobody here has been to a Titans game on Sunday? Well, this illustration is totally going to flop, but I'm going to do it anyway. So at the, the, um, the most recent couple that I, I went to, you got the, got the game in the first half, and then at halftime, they truck out these youth football teams. Anybody seen this? No, nobody has. Man, i got two hands back here. They, they, they bring out these little guys, and they're in full pads and helmets and everything, and they play in some community league, and they let them have a little scrimmage game during the halftime of the, of the Titans game. It's really fun. You know, they put it up on the, on the big jumbotron and... They, they let them each take turns on offense and defense. And it's kind of chaotic. You know, they tend to run the wrong way every now and then. They don't really tackle each other very well. But it's fun. And that game relates to the, to the real game in the sense of, of copy or shadow to real thing. It's still the same rules within reason. You know, they're lining up against each other. One team is on offense and one is on defense. And they're trying to score in the same way that a real football game, the teams are trying to score. There's nothing wrong with that youth football display. In fact, it's a stepping stone that gets these kids ready. Maybe, maybe one day they'll be playing for the Titans or for some NFL team. It, it serves its purpose, but it's not the real thing. I mean, as soon as that second half starts, immediately from the moment the ball is kicked, you know you're watching something that is the same in one sense, but in a real fundamental way, it is not the same thing. I think what our author is trying to say is that the forms that you're tempted to go back to, things like temple and priesthood of the Old Testament, that they're just youth football compared to Jesus, who is the NFL. And the point, of course, is that why in the world, knowing that you now have this real thing, would you ever go back to something that was good, but that was only ever meant to be temporary and partial? Jesus is the real thing. Now, what we're after this morning is to try to understand a couple of examples that he gives us, that he he really introduces us to here, and then he's going to run with later. Examples where Jesus serves as the real thing in in, in the same area that the Old Testament presented a copy or a shadow. Those two things that we're introduced to this morning are the place where Jesus does his work as a priest, what, what he refers to as the tabernacle or the tent, and then the covenant that Jesus uses that sort of sets the terms for how he's going to serve as a priest. It's the guiding document that says, here's what you're going to do as priest. So I've called it where Jesus intercedes for us as a priest and how, on what terms he intercedes for us. In both those cases, there was a shadow or a copy presented in the Old Testament that's now been fully realized in Jesus. And both of them, I think, have a lot to encourage us this morning. So first, let's think about the true tabernacle 
where Jesus intercedes for us. That's the first contrast that gets drawn. It's one that gets picked up again later uh, in, in, in later chapters. And what, what it's getting at is the physical location where people meet with God. What, like this is a physical location for us to meet together. The, the Old Testament and now the New both talk about there being a sort of physical place that you can see and enter into where people meet with God, a place where this broken relationship gets healed, at least symbolically. Under Moses' system and under Jesus, those places look very different. The first two verses in chapter 8 place Jesus in what the author calls the true tent or the true tabernacle. I'm going to use the word tabernacle because that, I think, evokes more of what the Old Testament was going for. It says Jesus is in this true tabernacle set up by God himself rather than human hands. And in the next verses, starting in verse 3, those refer to the earthly tabernacle. That's the, that's the comparison where it comes in. One that couldn't contain Jesus. One that Jesus would not be in. Even if he were on earth, he wouldn't be. We're told he wouldn't be in that tabernacle. It just couldn't contain what he had to offer because it was only a copy. So what's the difference? That's the main question we've got to answer this morning. What's the difference between this earthly tent and the true tent, the true tabernacle that Jesus set up? And how is that supposed to encourage us? That's what I want us to focus on this morning. Let's begin with what these verses say about the old tabernacle or the temple. Again, nothing in these verses says that that old tabernacle was a bad thing. It wasn't a ripoff or a cheap imitation. It says even in verse 5, as I mentioned before, that it was designed by God. Even though human hands built it, even though it was a shadow, it was designed by God. So in what sense is it still a shadow? The tabernacle was a site where heaven and earth came together. The place where God came to meet with sinful people to heal this relationship breach that we've been talking about in the last few weeks. But everything about this earthly tent, this earthly tabernacle, was set up to emphasize separation from God just as much as it was set up to emphasize connection to him. There were these different rooms, and only certain people could go into certain rooms, and only at certain times of the year, and after doing very particular kinds of washings, and only if they brought very particular kinds of sacrifices. And speaking of sacrifices, those had to be offered in a very particular way, and over and over and over again, never stopping, as if, as if the whole thing, the whole earthly tabernacle was just set up as a sign that God wants to meet with us, and he is, but that everything is still not okay. It, it, it is a come to me and a only come so far physical location. I think the best, the best analogy I could come up for for it uh, is a rope line at like a presidential or politician's event. I mean, that rope line is an area where a politician wants to come and meet people, right? It is a sign that I want to be able to come over to you and shake your hands and kiss your babies and win your votes through my charisma, right? That's the idea. It is a, a condescension of this person who's isolated to these people. But it is also a very clear line of separation. It's a come this far but no further because you haven't been screened. You're not, in a sense, worthy to come directly. You're not safe 
you're not, you're not up to, to par. You haven't met the right standards to come fully into my presence. I, th- I think that what we're meant to see here is that this earthly tabernacle was kind of a, a rope line. It was God coming to his people, wanting to be near them, but having to say, you can only come so far because you are not worthy yet. So if that's, if that's what the earthly tabernacle represented, how does Jesus change things? How does Jesus usher in the reality of which this tabernacle was just a copy? That's, that's a question that gets answered in full in the cha- two chapters that are coming after this one. But we get a sense of it already. Look at these verses with me. Verse 1, for example, says that Jesus is seated at God's right hand. This one little statement of physical location of where Jesus in his human body actually is right now, says so much about what he has accomplished for us as our priest, about the power of what he offered. Ultimately, this old tabernacle we've been talking about, it was set up as a site to come and make sacrifices. It was a tactile place that everybody knew where it was. Everybody came to it and they brought their sacrifices as a sign that they recognized that they weren't worthy and that there was guilt for their sin. It had no seats, the old tabernacle. There was no place to sit down because the priests were always working. Their work, in a sense, was never done because the sacrifices they were offering were never enough to to cure the ills of the people once and for all. The whole existence of this tabernacle was a sign that guilt remains. This isn't a perfect analogy, but I, I think it's almost like uh, it's almost like a level in a video game that you can't leave until you fulfilled all the obligations. You know, you guys have all played video games at one level or another. Even Super Mario has levels, right? And you have to accomplish these objectives before you can move on to the next level. And as long as you haven't accomplished those objectives, you're stuck in that world, so to speak. And the, the physical old earthly tabernacle was a sign that the objectives of that level had still not been uh, completed, that, that, that those priests were stuck in that level having to do the same things over and over again because what they were offering could never fully satisfy what was required. That Jesus is not confined to that building is a sign that Jesus has once and for all beaten the level. Jesus has accomplished all of the objectives. And in his accomplishment, he has been set free, so to speak, from the earthly old tabernacle into the one that will, that will last forever, that is coming to us in the new heavens and the new earth, the place where God's presence is enjoyed fully and without any kind of barrier, where there is most certainly a seat established next to him because the one who sits on it has done what he needed to do once and for all. This new physical location, in other words, this new tabernacle, the true one, the real one, is a tabernacle in which everything that's necessary for our relationship with God to be healed has already been done. That Jesus intercedes for us there is, a pr- is proof to us that he intercedes for us perfectly. If time would just allow us to camp here, can you, can you see 
the many different directions in which this is meant to encourage our faith. I know that some of you are sitting out there just carrying around your guilt like a bunch of bags. Just like, like in the old Pilgrim's Progress story, your burden, it's like this rock almost that's strapped to you and you just, you're hunched over emotionally and spiritually because you just can't let it go. And if that's you, do you realize that you feel that way because you have not yet connected with the fact that your priest sits at God's right hand because it's all done. He is not captive to the earthly tabernacle that was a sign that your guilt was still yours. He is now seated because he has taken it all. And there's nothing left to be done. Can you, can you live in that freedom? What's holding you back from trusting that the location of your priest says everything you need to know about where you stand with God? Trust in him. Jesus has come to earth and given a life he did not owe so that he could fully absorb the guilt that belongs fundamentally only to us. And he has done that perfectly, so that if you trust him, you have no more reason to fear. Let that burden go, because Jesus has sat down. Now, the last thing we want to do this morning is at least stick a toe in the water of this second shadow-to-reality contrast that our author is drawing for us. It's the one we're going to really get into next week, because the rest of the chapter is given to it. It's the difference between the new covenant that Jesus mediates for us. That's the language he uses, that, he, that Jesus uses to intercede with God on our behalf. And the old covenant, the one that was established in the Old Testament and that controlled how priests operated in that old tabernacle. What's the difference in these covenants? That's, that's what the next couple of weeks are going are gonna to allow us to explore. But I want to at least take a, stick a toe in the water this morning and what time we've got left. It's something that the author raises in verse 6. He says that Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. What he's getting at is that this covenant is what defines what's better about what Jesus does compared to the old way. I think the first thing we need to do here is at least quickly summarize what a covenant is. I don't think that that's something we have a really good handle on. We use that language sometimes. There's some areas of our life where we make covenants with each other, but I want to just make sure it's clear because it's going to control where we go in the next two or three weeks. A covenant is very different from a contract. It's similar in some ways. It's, it's like a written document that binds people together. It binds them to do things that they're promising to do. But when I make a contract to, say, buy a house... I'm promising that I'm going to pay a certain amount of money and that when I pay that money, you're going to give me that house. But then our relationship is pretty much done. A contract is very limited to specific situations. I'm not promising, for example, to help you raise your kids once I've bought your house. In a covenant, though, it's, it's a kind of commitment, a legal one, that is far more binding and wide-sweeping Because in a covenant, what you're promising is yourself. What you're doing is, yes, writing down stipulations that you're going to abide by. But but those stipulations say the sorts of things that commit all of you to that person. That's why in the Old Testament, and even today, when we make covenants, we swear them with oaths. It's not just that we're staking our word to it. An oath says, I am now giving you my identity. Like, I am now for you, and I, don't, I am not me apart from you. 
It's an identity thing. So think about marriage, for example. When, when, when a couple marries, they, they make all sorts of vows to each other, promising that they are now going to live basically for this other person, that we're now in the kind of relationship that touches everything about our lives. We're not going to just agree to do to maybe share living arrangements and, and at least do equal work with the kids and, and maybe do a couple of other things together, but, but, but ultimately we still want to have our space. No, that's not what a, a marriage covenant is about. It's about joining your whole life with this person. We make covenants to our church. We talk about church membership a lot around here. It's basically what we, a way that we refer to a lifestyle that we're calling each other to. And what defines our membership is a covenant that we sign with each other. That now, if you're in covenant with me and a member of my church, how I live towards you affects everything about me. It makes a statement about who I am based on the way that I treat you. I've now taken you into my identity, a kind of responsibility for you that touches everything about my life. And so when God makes covenants, as he does all through the scriptures, from the beginning all the way up through Jesus... When God makes covenants and swears an oath, what he is doing is staking his own identity to his faithfulness to those in covenant with him. He is pledging all of himself to us. That's why he swears an oath. We talked about back in chapter 6 of Hebrews. We saw this come up. It's why when Moses, for instance, asks God who he is on the mountain, God answers, I am the God. Tell, Tell Israel when they ask who I am, That I am, my identity, is the God of Jacob, of Abraham and Isaac. I am the God of the covenant. That defines me. Ultimately, what this covenant language means is that when we abandoned God through our sin, his response to our abandonment of him was to bind himself to us promising that he will never abandon us. Do you get that? From the, from the beginning, from right after our sin, all the way up through Jesus and the new covenant, we have a promise from God that his response to our abandonment of him, our decision to live as if he wasn't who he claims to be, is to pledge himself to us, to take us and his faithfulness to us into his own identity, promising that he will never, ever leave us. That's what a covenant is in general. What we're called to look at here, and what we'll really look at next week, is, that, is, is what he's calling a new covenant. Like I said, Jesus, or God has made many different covenants through the Old Testament. There's, there's one with Abraham that sort of sets the pattern for all the other ones, but it comes up in different forms through Moses, and then again through David especially. And the one that he's referring to here is mostly the, the rules that got put in place when Moses was leading Israel. What he's trying to show is that Jesus Jesus enters in with a new version of this covenant, a new set of stipulations for it that build on what came before but that fulfill it in a way that that old covenant was just a shadow of. And the essence of it is this. The essence of this new version of the old covenant is that Jesus will provide everything that's required of us in that old covenant. The old covenant came with a set of promises that God was making, and it also came with a set of very stern warnings that if Israel did not respond to his grace in the way that he called them to, 
that they would be punished. And much of, old, of Israel's history in the Old Testament is a history of them failing to meet their end of the covenant and being judged for it. But in the midst of that judgment that the prophets record for us, in the middle of it, in the middle of a book that promises the judgment, comes a passage that gets quoted in full in what we'll look at next week from Jeremiah 31. A, pa- a promise that, that God will respond to their failure, not by dismissing them once and for all, but by giving them even more promises. And that these new promises he gives them are a promise that he will give them the obedience that he calls for from them. The obedience that had always proven too much for Israel and that has certainly already proven to be too much for us is now an obedience that he is going to give to us through Jesus and through the power of his spirit to change us and make us new. He is promising that he will forgive the iniquity of our sin once and for all because Jesus has fully paid for it with his sacrifice. And he's promising that he will now give us the ability to live for Jesus by the power of his spirit. Those are better promises That's a new covenant that only Jesus could make possible. I've said already, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the details of this. But the last thing I want to leave you with, what I want to encourage you to think about today and and the rest of the week, to really analyze your heart, to see if you're living like this new covenant is for you, as if Jesus' promises to you in this covenant are true. I'm going to leave you with one more point. What every previous version of this covenant was set up to show is that if fixing the relationship that we've broken is up to us, we are hopeless. That's the sense in which every previous version was a copy, a shadow of what was coming. It was set up to show that if fixing the relationship is up to us, we're hopeless. What the new covenant is there to promise you is that if you trust in Jesus, you have a relationship with God that is not breakable by you. Because this covenant offers you promises that just can't be spoiled. They're promises that Jesus, by his work, has fully and completely made real for us. Because they come with stipulations that Jesus has fully and completely already fulfilled. This is what our author has already called a steadfast anchor of the soul. God has fastened himself to us based on his faithfulness, not ours. This, is not, this covenant is not a passage to you about what you've got to do. If you came here this morning looking for three good things you can go and try this week, this is not the passage for you. This is a passage about what Jesus has done once and for all that sets you free from what you were told to do. It's, the, it's one that gives you power to live differently because of what's already true, not because of what will only be true if you perform to a certain standard. And isn't this what we're all looking for? The kind of stability in a relationship that isn't based on our performance? To be loved because we're loved, not because we've met some standard? That's what the new covenant promises to you. If you trust in Jesus... God has taken you into his own identity. He has made promises to you that he could sooner pass out of existence than break. And those promises are based not on what you do, but on what Jesus has done for you. So what is keeping you this week from living like that's true? Ultimately, he's promised he won't abandon you. 
So don't give in. Don't give in to guilt, to loneliness, and despair. Father, help us. That is easier said than done. We, we desperately want to live on the terms of this covenant that Jesus has made possible for us. But everything that comes natural to us is, flies in the face of what this covenant says to us. Everything that comes natural tells us that our performance is what defines how, we, how valuable we are, whether we're worthy of you or anyone else. What we need is a paradigm shift in our minds and hearts one that we trust can only come by the power of your Spirit. So we ask that you would work in us, that your covenant and its promise would show itself true in our lives because you will write your laws on our hearts, that you will change what we want, that you will make us secure because we are fastened to you by promises you have made and you alone will keep. That's our prayer. Make it so, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you.